Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hey, Chris, how are you today? Yeah, great, Mark. Uh, pleasure to be here. Likewise. And um, are you, you're in Australia right now? Yeah, I'm in Australia. I'm in, uh, I'm not in Sydney, Melbourne, or Brisbane, which is the places most people know. I'm actually in Adelaide, South Australia, which is very south and, and sort of in the middle. What is Adelaide famous for? Uh, wine, Penfolds wine. You may may yeah. have Penfolds yeah. wine. That's yeah. probably uh, what we're most known for. We've got yeah, lovely beaches and yeah, lots of great, lots of great produce, food and wine for sure. Well, I'm I'm on the uh, the west coast of the US, and there's a couple big ecosystems here for startups, um, especially technology startups. Obviously, Silicon Valley, and I'm up in the Seattle Bellevue area. We have Microsoft and AWS and a bunch of other things up here. Um, what's it like leading a startup, especially, you know, related to, uh, to crypto, uh, in the, uh, in Adelaide, is there an ecosystem for it there or do you, uh, how does that work? Yeah, look, to be completely frank, it's a little bit of a challenge. We are, mm -hmm. um, we're a little bit isolated, I guess, physically, um, Sydney mm -hmm. and Melbourne and Australia are the two powerhouse, I guess, cities in terms of, um, you know, community and ecosystem. And there's a, there's a, a very I guess, growing, thriving ecosystem in both crypto and, and tech. Um, you may have heard of Atlassian, which is probably oh, one yeah, of course, sort yeah. of larger uh, success stories in Australia and yeah. um, they're on the eastern eastern side uh, of Australia. But where we are in Adelaide, um, it's what, about an, an hour and a half flight to Sydney. So uh, we're a little bit sort of separate from that sort of ecosystem. But um, uh, we've got a lot of, I guess, really passionate people and as a there's a real tendency for people in Adelaide to kind of move elsewhere and then come back later mm -hmm. in life and bring that experience. So we've kind of got an interesting mix of, I guess, young startups and entrepreneurs, and then we've got more experienced people that have maybe worked in Silicon Valley or, um, you know, been successful elsewhere and then, and then come back when they've started families and then uh, provide mentoring or support to, to others in the space. That's excellent. I, I think, I mean, one of the greatest things in the world and time that we live in right now is this ability to, to work semi remotely or remotely and um, yeah, just pick a place that you want to be and, and, and go start your business there because it, a lot of it can be done all online and um, with virtual employees or, um, you know, outsourcing and so on. So it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's really cool. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, the other part of that story, I guess, is um, you get an opportunity to, to connect with people all around the world, um, mm -hmm. you know, regularly, you know, like yourself. So, um, you know, for me personally, we actually um, uh, raised a seed round uh, at the start of COVID. And in some ways, COVID made it a little bit easier because there were all these sort of conversations that we could have. Everybody was on Zoom. It didn't, yeah. you couldn't actually meet with people face to face. So as long as you could navigate the time zone, um, you could have a conversation with anyone if they were willing. That's, that's definitely true. Hey, um, I want to talk to you about self-sovereign identities um, and then some of the issues related to self-sovereign identities. I also want to get into zero knowledge credentials and then um, and then talk a little bit about how personal data um, can unlock AI digital assistance. So um, why don't we kick things off though with, could you, you know, put it in layman's terms, um, what is self-sovereign identity? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess we think of identity today, this, it can mean different things, but um, if we think about it in the digital world, I guess a digital identity, 
you know, we're very familiar with signing with Google and, and signing with Facebook. Um, and they're forms of digital identity that exist today, uh, but they're centralized. So mm-hmm. if Google want to delete your account or, you know, revoke access, they can do that. You know, if Facebook right. wants to do that, they, they can. So the there's Chinese this centralized. If you're yeah, as <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, the concept of self-sovereign identity is effectively creating a, uh, a an architecture where as an individual you can create an identity and no one can take it away from you it's, it's sovereign to you you own it you control it you can delete it potentially um, but nobody else has that power and so um, fundamentally what it's trying to do is say hey look there's this new type of decentralized technology that can um, allow uh, I guess trustless execution and if we combine that with this concept of owning our identity um we can be the the masters and controllers of of who we are uh in the digital sphere and then from that concept of of this identity we can control we can start to control all the rest of the um the world that we have online okay so maybe take a step back when we talk about identity, like if Google has my identity, um, we're just talking about basically credentials, right? At, at this point, um, are we talking about something? Okay, so the, my my identity allows me to access certain tools and platforms and so on, right? And uh, and and typically, in in if that's the case, people will have multiple identities, okay? Because I you know you know, use some of the Microsoft platform, some of the um, Google's platform, and who who knows what else. Um, what can I do? What could I do with a self-sovereign identity? Okay. Is this just a, like a, like a, a, a credential that allows me access to all those different platforms and tools, or is it something that I can build up social credits on or, or what, how did, how will that work? Yeah. So we're kind of at the early stages of what this self-sovereign identity is going to look like. Cause it's, it's an emerging technology. So, um, there's actually different implementations of these self-sovereign identities. You can think of it as there's a there's a, a large number of people that have been working for a long time on standards to, to, to find technology standards around what uh, a self-sovereign identity is. And then there's lots of, as happens with early tech, there's lots of implementations. And so today um, uh, there's uh, early apps like Blue Sky is a social media application. So they are an application designed to kind of be an alternative to Twitter that's based on self-sovereign identity. So that's one example. Um, you know, some of the work that, that I do of reader is around people owning their own data. So we're working with projects that are helping people take ownership of their data and, and use that in different ways. Um, we're familiar with crypto. Um, while a blockchain address and a wallet address is not exactly a self-sovereign identity in terms of how that's defined, it is self-sovereign in that anyone can create their own wallet address. And there's an emerging sort of range of applications that are allowing people to sign using their private key to, to access applications. Things like signing with Ethereum is unlocking new types of decentralized applications that are very, uh, very aligned and, and will in, eventually sort of integrate into what becomes self-sovereign identity. So um, there's a, a spattering of different apps today, but it's still quite early. Um, if you look at the vision, though, the ultimate vision of self-sovereign identity and, and bringing that into some of the Web3 spaces, effectively replacing and disrupting all of those existing centralized platforms, both from an identity perspective, but also in terms of the, the, the products that they're providing. So you could think of in the future, a decentralized a self-sovereign Gmail, potentially, where, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a, you're signing in with a, an account that nobody can control except you as, a, as an individual. Okay. And... Taking it a step further, is it um, 
a potential use case where I can create an identity. Um, I can build up you know, financial resources uh, that are linked to that identity. I could actually uh, develop credit or um, get credit from lending agencies based upon my profile. And so they don't need to know my actual name or anything like that. I mean, I could have like a, a almost an, an, an anonymous identity that I could control, or will that identity always be linked to, you know, me, Mark Schreiner? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because there's some nuance here. So the way that I like to think about this is, you know, as you correctly said earlier, we have multiple identities. So we have, you know, you know, we've got a Facebook account, a Twitter account, an Apple account, you know, Google, whatever. So we've got lots of these different accounts. You know, if you look at your password manager, it's probably ridiculous how many accounts you I have, just, right? I was just fighting with my password manager to get before this uh, call. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's the world that we live in. And I think the way that I see it is that a self-sovereign identity will eventually become a container for those actual identities. And so you could think of it as being able to unlock access to those centralized platforms, unlock access to new emerging decentralized apps that require a self-sovereign identity, um, but also being a container for your real world identity, for a digital credential that is, uh, you know, a digital version of your passport or your driver's license or medical, you know, a qualification or, um, you know, maybe some health data as well as potentially represented like a COVID certificate or something. So you can see the future where, um, you know, this identity that we control becomes a, a container for all these different types of identity and identity related information. So um, to that end, you know, this, this concept of, um, you know, being able to take my data from the real world. So perhaps um, we've actually been working with a project that allows you to upload two years of bank statements and it digitizes that for them, for you, signs it and then gives it to you. So you can think about that as a really simple example of, of what you're referring to. And once I have that data, it's signed and trusted, I could then anonymously share that um, or do a zero knowledge proof perhaps about the proof, something about my income or my expenses without actually disclosing who I am. So the technology is coming. That's the sort of technology and the path that we're, we're moving towards. Um, but there are some challenges there, challenges there around, you know, regulation, you know, some of these industries um, have regulation that don't expect this type of technology to exist. Right. So um, it doesn't necessarily have awareness and, and um, have a regulatory environment that means that it's actually viable today. So, um, you know, it's, it's early. So there's interesting challenges that are coming up along the way. Do, do you use or do you have a self-sovereign identity? I do. Um, so we have, um, we actually have developed technology around self-sovereign identity, which uh, we've deployed. And so we use that on our phones today um, to unlock access to different applications that are uh, playing with this technology and, and building new types of, of um, identity-based solutions. Can you just walk me through a use case that you Yeah, that sure. You yeah, so um, we've got a, a mobile phone application um, so a really simple, really, really simple use case. Um, what you can do is you can effectively, uh, have a phone application. Um, the application, uh, you press a button and it basically says, Hey, I'm creating you a, a new identity. And what actually happens is it creates a cryptographic key pair on your phone, which is only in your phone, only you have. Um, and then it uses that to, um, send a message to a blockchain and effectively create officially sign and say, Hey, this identity exists. Um, and then what happens is that identity is linked to different infrastructure, including data storage. So we've got a really simple, there's a really simple application, which is a, a text editor. So you just go to a website, you scan a QR code, 
you effectively install this app, which gives you a, um, a private key, and then your app connects to the, uh, to the text editor. And suddenly that text editor can st uh, store and manage encrypted data for you. So you've got this private encrypted self-sovereign note-taking service. Um, and that data is then stored across different computers around the world. All that data is encrypted. It's in controlled by you. Nobody else can access that. And it's not reliant on any central party. So that's just a really simple example. Um, and the, and, the, and benefit obviously... the benefit of that is one, you've, you've taken a note, you've stored it in an encrypted manner, right? And you can access it from anywhere in the world on any device, as long as you have your cryptographic key. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And so you could write that cryptographic key down on a piece of paper and okay. lose so your device. I was going to say, if I lose my phone, then I right. Yeah. So, but the, there, and, and and by the way, I mean maybe we're, we're told that writing things down on a piece of paper sometimes are not is not the most secure manner to do it. What would you say is the best practice in that scenario to? Um, to <laughs> store your key. <laughs> I, look, it's a there's a there's challenges here because I think that the correct answer depends on. Um, the, the person and also depends on the use case. Mm -hmm. You know, the the requirement to save maybe a couple of notes I took on a, you know, an encrypted note taking service is a little bit different if I've got a billion dollars of Bitcoin that I'm trying to secure, right? So different, um, I think, security models depending on, you know, what you're trying to protect. Um, there's also Good point. some challenges where, you know, if we recommend, if we're trying to bring people that aren't used to this self-sovereign concept, there's a challenge here. Like they do have to take some ownership over, um, you know, securing, you know, th those keys and, yeah. um, they can't yeah, call no, help no, and say, help me get my, uh, it's like, what? You can't bring someone up and say, oh, reset my, like reset password just does not exist. That's, right. the, that's the, the reality of it. So, um, so there's a user experience problem. And, and I think that, you know, my take on that is that, uh, security is a user experience problem in, in many ways too. They're very interlinked. And so mm -hmm. I think the, the challenge for people um that are in this space or building software in this space and, and tools is how do we cross that bridge how do we help people access this new emerging space which is better for them but how do we protect them from not losing their keys and things like that and so there's some really interesting technology um multi-party computation is, a, is an interesting option here which is emerging as a solution in this space um the way that that works is ironically enough you could actually use multiple of your centralized platforms where you can reset a password to unlock your decentralized self-sovereign key. So the way that that would work is I might say, I'll connect my, I'll sign in with Facebook, I'll sign in with Twitter, I'll sign in, oh, sorry, X, I'll sign in with um, Google. And if I can prove that I've signed in with all three of those services, I can unlock my key and then access my self-sovereign account. And so not one, none of those services on their own can unlock it, but if you have all three, you can. Um, and I think that's a really interesting way to bridge the gap between people just using the, 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 the platforms they're familiar with, but getting the benefits of this uh, emerging tech. What about other things like uh, biometrics or behavioral anal analytics or anything like that? Yeah. So biometrics are great, but, um, they're linked to a device. So for instance, if you're on an iOS device, you know, I can have face ID to unlock something, but what I'm actually unlocking is just a key that's already on the device. So there's still a fundamental problem of how you store that key. Um, pass keys are, are an interesting tech here, uh, which are 
um, you know, the ability to almost have like this sort of long cryptographic password that can be used to unlock, you know, um, keys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, if I'm talking about the iOS ecosystem, that's great that they're stored on the device and then you're relying on Apple to store those in the iCloud and then to sync that across different devices. So, um, uh, there's different approaches, but you have to be a little bit careful around, you know, is the security model, um, uh, actually just a, a quasi device security model that at the end of the day, the device is stored on the key. You still got this problem of how do you back that up? Um, right. you know, do you back that up on a centralized platform like Apple or do you, you know, download that and save that on paper or do you do some multi party computation sort of approach? So I think there's a distinction between, um, you know, the fundamental backup and recovery um, implementation and then how it's presented to the user. And typically biometrics is, is how it's presented to the user. If that makes yeah, sense. I mean, I, I was I was just envisioning something where, you know, maybe I can authenticate by logging into my Gmail account or, or Facebook or, or whatever. Um, and then another form of authentication would be um, a cloud-based or blockchain-based avenue to do either that would look at a biometric that's already been scanned and stored. So I, I would actually have to practically go in and obviously set that up sometime. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's a that's a another well, business idea. Yeah, I mean, but, that, you could do that with multi-party computation. So you could okay. actually do that using that as the MPC is the primitive, and then yeah. those as the different um, unlocks or gates, I guess, that have to be jumped through to to unlock that key. Um, there is a there is a project which I've heard of, but I haven't spoken to the team at depth technically. But they were promising something very interesting, which was the ability to do face recognition through your camera phone, um, voice recognition. So you know you talk. So there's yep. two really important data points, and then combining that with a third that was you know, the user choice. So that was, you know, Facebook or Twitter or, or something, right? Mm. That's a really interesting idea. And um, I think that, uh, but what what they were doing is they were doing it so you could unlock a deterministic key, which is a little bit different. So what they were saying is instead of unlocking, you, you could basically use your face and your yeah. voice to unlock a key that's the same every single time. Um, and that's incredibly powerful because it means you don't have to store this key in different places anywhere. It, do, it right. doesn't get, it doesn't exist anywhere. So you're almost recreating that with your own biometrics, which is a, a very different um, you know model because there's no there's nothing to store anywhere. Right. So right. I think something like that, if if that's a viable thing, that would be really interesting because then you don't you don't need a network, you don't need a centralized platform to back up a key or to recover a key. You basically just use your biometrics on any device that you pick up, and you can just unlock access to to your information. I mean, you would think that at some point that's where we get to. I mean, it's just yeah. seamless kind of a hey, tell me, you know, you talk to your computer, tell me this, tell me that, and, and whatever you want to access, um, you should be able to. But then again, well, then you've got WorldCoin where they scan your iris. And yeah, that's okay. Your, I but wasn't your aware of that one. You really, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's evolving quickly. Um, tell me about. Uh, the I mean, it says that uh, you guys just launched a um, a mobile crypto wallet, right? So yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's lots of mobile crypto wallets out there today. You know, the mm-hmm. the space has been maturing pretty quickly. Um, what we're doing is a little bit different, though. We we see that um, I guess the emergence of um, blockchain, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum. Polygon, you know, there's there's a whole range of blockchains that exist today. Um, 
it's really been this amazing sort of movement of deploying public private key pairs <laughs> to people. Um, and uh, fundamentally, the concept of self sovereign identity is taking a public private key pair and adding all this other capability to it so that it can facilitate discovering other people and you know, verifying signed data and um, unlocking you know, your own private encrypted data and, and all these things messaging, etc. So what we've done is we've built a mobile app called the Verita wallet. And what our objective is to say, Hey, look, we've got crypto wallets. That's great. But what if we could upgrade them to be this sort of super wallet? And what does that, what does that look like? And so our wallet is a little bit different in that when you actually open it, the first thing it, it says is, Hey, we're going to create a self-sovereign identity for you. We're going to create mm -hmm. a decentralized identity. Um, and to do that, we're actually going to say, we actually ask people, you know, what country are you in? And the reason we do that is we actually embed in the first iteration of your identity. And we say, Hey, you're now going to access decentralized infrastructure in your country or region. So it'll be faster and more secure and, and a bunch of things like that. And so this app, this mobile app, um, gives you a decentralized self-sovereign identity. It allows you to have encrypted databases. So, you know, the example I gave about, you know, just a, a text editor, um, that's a really basic example of that, but you, you know, you could have your health data, you could have your um, social media history, you could have private DMs that you, that you send people. Um, there is a, a the ability for other apps to send you encrypted messages. There's a, a new type of single sign-on where you can scan a QR code and unlock access to an app without any centralized party being involved. So we're really, I guess, amplifying this concept of owning your you know, crypto keys and, and adding mm -hmm. all these other capabilities to it and then making it possible for people to build new types of software or applications that understand these self-sovereign identities. So you could build a Gmail alternative where people own all their data and it's all encrypted or, you know, people building social media alternatives or, you know, healthcare platforms where you could just own all your healthcare data and you can take it wherever you want or, you know, just unlocking all this type of, I guess, innovation and new types of products and, and services that we think can exist in this, in this user-owned and controlled world. Yeah, it's interesting about healthcare. I, one of my sons, he had to get a certain document from the state to that show to show that he had been tested when he was born for some different blood things because that's a requirement, and to uh, participate in this activity that he was going to participate in, they they require this. Uh, these these t test results or the certification. So I have to actually go to the state um, and fill out an application, a form, submit, you know, a payment and then wait for them to, you know, respond. And, and I'm like, that's our data or his data. Why can't, why can't, you know, why are, why do they have it even? You know, why are they holding yeah. it? No, and I, I, it would yeah. be great if there's some type of uh, central, well, I guess, decentralized repository where it's your data and uh, you have access to it from anywhere at any time. You can sh choose who you want to share it with. But um, let's go to back to the, the, the super wallet concept. Um, if somebody was looking, actually, this could be even a step farther back, uh, to a crypto wallet. Okay, some people use exchanges, some people use wallets. What 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 are the pros and cons? And 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 then if you if you if on the pro side of the wallets, um, how do you select a wallet? Yeah, so I guess that the, the top of that decision tree you mentioned is you know do I have my own crypto wallet or do I use a, a centralized platform? And mm -hmm. so we kind of refer that to a, a custodial wallet where a centralized platform is effectively like your Coinbase or or something like this. Exactly. Yes. Binance, Coinbase, um, or is it self-custody where I control it? So there's 
there's a few things there. So um, if you're if you're trying to buy and hold cryptocurrency, um, you're probably better off self-custodying that and just having complete ownership and control. And then there's no third-party risk. There's no risk that a centralized platform will, will go under. Um, that does happen from time to time in crypto where yep. you've got your funds in a centralized platform and, and they collapse and you lose everything. Um, but you don't have that risk if you self-custody. So that's a real pro, right? You've got no third-party risk. Your only real risk there is that the underlying blockchain, you know, isn't hacked or, or has some other underlying issue. Um, or that you risk, you risk losing your key. <laughs> so right. that's the, that's the downside, right? You have to take ownership of that key. The centralized platform, you've got the risk there, obviously, of them going down, but you've got um, other benefits because um, often you can trade. So if you're wanting to buy and sell a lot, it's often faster, quicker, cheaper. Um, you know, you can do that on the decentralized self-custody wallets, but um, often there's less liquidity and it's a bit slower and, 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 and can be more expensive. So there's some trade-offs there again, depending on what you, you're sort of trying to achieve. Okay. And if, if you, well, let me actually ask another question. Um, a lot of people believe that Crypto really hasn't taken off. I mean, it's taken off. It hasn't become mainstream um, because people aren't using it on a daily basis or regular basis to transact business, right? To go out and buy and sell things. Um, it's more of a, oftentimes it's a, it's more of a um, kind of a speculative asset. Let's buy it, hold it, trade it, et cetera. Um, or used to, um, to get money out of certain scenarios and get it into another scenario where maybe it's a little easier to access, or maybe you can avoid certain, you know, potential issues. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, are we going to start using, you know, Bitcoin or an, another currency, cryptocurrency to transact in our normal lives? And if so, is it better than to have a wallet or use a, 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 a different platform? Yeah. So, um, I've got a slightly different take um, where I think, well, actually on the, on the adoption side. So the crypto definitely hasn't become the de facto payment for people. I, I, I guess at retail, you don't go to your local shop. I mean, there's, there's actually a few here in Adelaide where you can pay with Bitcoin or crypto, but that's the exception and not the rule. And I don't think it's that popular. Um, you're right. The vast majority of activity um, with blockchain has been speculation and um, you've seen that we've seen the DeFi space emerge, which is really a way of optimizing the speculation to be completely honest in, yeah. in this space. Um, I actually think that uh, retail payments and things aren't going to be the mass adoption solution for this tech. Yeah. I think that it's going to be helpful, but it's not, it's, you know, the current payment rails we have today, while it's not perfect, isn't isn't a huge pain point, really, I think, for most people, particularly with Apple Wallet and things like that. Where I see uh, that changing is with central bank digital currencies, um, which if they come, that will drive, I think, more end retail type use cases around payments because it'll be driven by the government and regulation and things like that. So I guess watch this space. That'll be interesting how what happens there. But the way the, the way I look at adoption is actually more so from a um, the whole of the economy. You know, you look at the health pharma industry as a trillion dollar industry. Um, you know, social media is a trillion dollars. You've got advertising. You know, you've got insurance. You've got government services. You've got fashion. You've got all these other industries that are massive. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, we 
the I guess the crypto space isn't really touching those. There's a little bit of stuff with NFTs, I guess, in fashion and, and whatnot, but it's very, very minuscule. And my take on that is because all of those other parts of the economy, they actually need to know something about you and me. If I'm going to do business with someone, they need to know something about me. They have mm-hmm. to be able to target me. They need to be able to know my address to ship something to me. They, you know, There's a whole bunch of stuff there that requires personal information. Mm-hmm. And so my thesis is that once we can combine the power of decentralized tech, self-sovereign identity and crypto with tooling that allows businesses to, to use products that know something about you. So there's this private data that sits alongside crypto. We can unlock all those other um, you know, industries and effectively turn them into these sort of web three type digital economies. And that's when we'll get, uh, I guess, the mass adoption that people are hoping for. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and then going back to, if you're going to pick a, a crypto wallet, what are, what are your selection criteria? Um, I think again, yeah, it's, it's, there's different wallets for different purposes. So like Coinbase is a, is obviously a wallet that's got, um, a huge company behind it. Um, and you know, has different incentives They have, you know, marketing campaigns with Starbucks, um, you know, they're trying to promote themselves, I guess, as that retail friendly wallet. So there's probably a user experience considerations there. Maybe you, you shop regularly at Starbucks. So that would be a reason that you choose that particular wallet. Uh, and then the other end of the spectrum, you've got open source wallets that are where you can read all the source code if you're so inclined and you can trust that there's no there's nothing going on there that you're worried about so you know if you're wanting to self-custody and you're really concerned about security you might actually use a, an open source wallet and, and put uh use that for your for your um you know custody of your uh of your tokens um so i think there's a, a, a trade-off there between um, user experience, you know, brand, you know, people trust brands um, mm-hmm. through to people that are very technically savvy and are, are very security conscious. So again, it's really depends if, if you're asking me, um, I use different wallets for different purposes. You know, okay. I have a, a wallet, which is sort of a, a throwaway wallet where it's okay if, if something goes bad with that. And, you know, I've got other wallets that are hardware wallets where it, they never see, you know, an internet connection and, and are protected from being hacked. Um, so I think it, it, it really depends on, you know, what it is you're trying to protect. And it's a bit like, um, you know, you might have multiple email addresses, right? You know, and sure. you might have them for different purposes. So I think that's a similar thing with the way that people are starting to think about how they how they use and, and manage their wallets. Okay. And then and, and if we go to um, your super wallet, how do you how do you make money from that? Um, so I guess we see this as um, a public good in a way. Okay. So um, uh, the first thing is I guess we're a little our wallet is a little bit ahead of its time in that it's sort of showing what this future can look like. So we're mm-hmm. trying to I guess use it to tell a story, and people are starting to build on it, which is great. But fundamentally, it's saying, hey, there's a better way. You know, if you wanted to do you know, the healthcare example you talked about, yeah. um, you could actually do that with the tech that we've got. It's just that the healthcare industry is incredibly, you know, well regulated and there's a whole bunch of challenges there. There's a lot of monopolies in, in place. So, um, you know, as a early stage startup in an emerging tech space, it's not really a viable, you know, area for us to focus on, but it's actually really well suited for healthcare use cases. So our model is actually um, just like this blockchain for decentralized computation, effectively. Um, we've built a decentralized network, which is not a blockchain, but it is decentralized for storing of private user data. And so we call that the Verita network. Um, and so for us, uh, we have a token that effectively will be driving the uh, utility of storing data and paying for data uh, on this private encrypted storage network. 
And so much like you have gas fees that you know mm -hmm. you pay when you interact with blockchain, there'll be token fees that'll that we use to store data effectively on on our the Verita network. And so the super wallet that we have is in fact just a way to kind of help people start using the storage network that we've developed along with different blockchains and bring those two together for a, a really simple, easy interface for end users to, to use. And in turn, that makes a, a really nice interface for developers to start building new types of applications where people own their data, own their crypto. And so, and I'm sorry, I, I don't completely understand the technology, but when you, t you say it's not the blockchain, it is a private chain uh network right it's a, uh, it's a public network so it's a public um, network yeah so that... if you're familiar with ipfs ipfs is a public storage network where you can okay. store images and videos it's um it's great for storing files um we have a public network but it's designed for storing private data so that's probably the where it get, gets a bit interesting so um you could think of it as like a, a decentralized database mm -hmm. and all the data is encrypted and all the data is encrypted from keys that exist on my on my device, on my phone, or you know, in my web browser. And yeah. so, while the infrastructure is public, the data that's stored is private and only accessible by me. Got you. Um, and that's supported through these tokens. That yeah, correct, correct. Yeah, so, so based we upon will, usage. Um, and... Exactly. So let's say you want to store a you know a gigabyte of data, then you'll buy you'll, you'll have effectively the, the right amount of tokens to store that. Um, data on the network, um, but it also unlocks interesting use cases. So let's say there was a health in, a health company, let's say there was a health insurance company that wanted to create a decentralized health insurance product. What they might do is they might say, hey, hey, Mark, we're going to give you, you know, 100 Verita tokens and we're going to allow you to connect all your health data from all the different hospital systems that you've seen in the last 10 years. So that's awesome. Now you've got all of your data and you own it. But you're also then going to share that back to that health insurance company in a privacy preserving way to access a better, cheaper, more personalized health insurance product that's decentralized. So we're starting to, I guess, look at how we create the infrastructure to help people claim their data, have um, the ability for, for products and services to sort of incentivize you to do that and help um, subsidize the cost of doing that at an infrastructure level and then unlock these types of new sort of uh, use cases where, you know, users own their data and the, the products and services you, you access are actually really personalized. So, so you know, I'm, I'm listening to you talking, it, it all sounds brilliant. Um, but at the same time, I'm thinking that, you know, as you go out and try to grow your business, um, you, you've either got to convince businesses and or end users to, you know, utilize your platform and your tools. Um, and, I, I would think that, you know, there's a, fig, a certain universe of early adopters who are out there and they're like, yeah, this is awesome. Let me, you know, let me go ahead and get the, uh, the, the Verita wallet. Um, but the, for the mass majority of people, um, the, the people are like, well, I don't really get it. Okay. So I, I, I'm wondering for you how much of an obstacle that is. And, you know, is it something that you're like, okay, let's, let's build it now and then they will come or, um, you know, just like, when the internet took off and, and you know, web 2.0 and it, 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 there are these waves. I mean, what are your thoughts on that in terms of your business? Yeah, the go-to-market strategy is very interesting. I think um, you're exactly right. Like, you know, if you look at the, the adoption curve, we're right at the very beginning of that curve. And so um, there's definitely a timing component. So for us, we, we're putting a lot of energy and effort in making sure the technology is ready 
for when the timing is right. So, you know, you don't know exactly when the timing, you know, when that's going to take off, but we're, we're making sure that we've got the pieces in, in, uh, you know, in place when that does happen. The things that we can do today is, um, uh, there's two fundamental things, I guess, or three. So one is we're working with existing crypto ecosystems where there's existing large numbers of users that are really active and wanting to explore this technology. So we're putting what we're doing in front of them. We're working with partners who are building little apps to showcase what they're doing and, and showcase what we're doing. So we're building an ecosystem there with with existing crypto ecosystems, which is which is great. But that doesn't that's web three, that's crypto, that's not the real world in a way. Like there's this sort of you know it's, it's that's still a very, very infant sort of sort of small space. So the other thing that we've been doing is working with some larger companies, um, almost like private consulting and mm -hmm. Um, helping them explore this space mm -hmm. with a lens of, hey, we've got 5 million users. How would we actually bring them on a journey and bring them across? You know, we had one project where, um, you know, it was a, a, a sort of a large telecommunications company and they wanted to provide personalized service to their customers, but they wanted to do it in a way um, that uh, was privacy preserving and they wanted to build more trust about protecting your user data. So they wanted to kind of give data back to the customer, but then also um, provide a personalized experience to the customer at different touch points. And so um, we did some some workshops and we went through a whole range of different sort of co-development work there, which was really valuable because we got to learn about the problems that they're facing um, with their customer base. And so it helps us shape the technology and shape the wallets and shape the tooling for, for developers to kind of make sure that we've got things like consent screens that are mm -hmm. that make sense to people that you can easily understand, you know, adding um, explainers that explain, hey, you're actually downloading this wallet because we're giving you your data. So telling a story there and getting that user experience right. So there's a, a learning there that we're doing with other uh, existing large companies who want to get into this space. And so really our objective there is to get our tech to become more friendly and them mm -hmm. to learn more about how they can integrate that within their existing customer base. So that's a, a really interesting angle where you really only need one or two of those projects to be successful. And suddenly you're um, probably one of the largest sort of crypto projects in the space. Um, so that's, a, I think, a really interesting um, sort of opportunity that, that we've sort of been delving into. And then the last one, the last strategy is um, very crypto native. We've, we will be launching a, a Verita token and a part of that will be incentivizing people to pull their data across. So, mm -hmm. for instance, I would be able to go in and, you know, pull my data out of the existing, you know, social media platforms or maybe in the future healthcare systems or, um, you know, maybe my financial data from open banking initiatives. And effectively, we'll reward people for pulling their data in and, and taking ownership of that. So it's a win for the user because they earn some tokens. They get to take ownership of their data. But we then sort of seed one side of this marketplace. And so then if you want to build an application that's built on this concept of privacy and self-sovereignty and you know user control, we've got a whole bunch of data here. We've got a whole bunch of users that are ready to go and are wanting to kind of explore that world. And so we help sort of seed one side of the market to then bring um, an ecosystem of developers along with, the, with us on the journey. It sounds exciting. It sounds like a lot of work and uh, some patience is required. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, not, it's just like nobody knows when, when, when is the tide going to turn, you know, or when are the floodgates going to come open? Um, and I, you know, having dealt with l large organizations for most of my uh, professional career, typically they're not into changing paradigms or, um, 
or taking on risk, you know, and it, it does sound risky, but, but I'm sure that they are, obviously they understand the, the, you know, potential upsides. Yeah, it's a really good point. Totally agree. And they tend to move a bit slower for sure. Um, what's changing though, is the regulatory environment. You know, you've got GDPR in Europe, you've got similar like regulations in different industries in the US and Australia. And what that means is it's changing the risk profile. So it's actually becoming riskier for these companies to keep this data. You know, no, that's hacked. a really good point. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, that's, that's what, so there's point. a really interesting yeah. timing thing here with that where- We can, we can, we can take care of all that GDPR, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, exposure um, exactly. by just taking that data and putting it, yeah, I, I get it. No, that's awesome. Um, I, I noticed in the show notes here that um, one of your one of your topics that um, was suggested was how personal data can unlock AI digital assistants. First off, what's an AI digital assistant, and how will our personal data be able to unlock them? Yeah, so um, I guess sort of seeing a future state where. Um, at the moment, our, my data, your data, all of our data is fragmented in these different centralized platforms. You know, the um, Google have a monopoly um, over your data that's in the Google ecosystem and, and they have a monopoly over innovating and making, you know, that useful for you. Um, you know, you might be purchasing stuff from Amazon and that's in a different sort of ecosystem where that purchase history is there and recommendations are living over there. And um, health, health, again, is different, completely different box, right? Mm -hmm. So... You know, I guess the future world that I see is, well, if self-sovereign identity and data can help us take ownership of all of these pieces of data, we kind of create this, um, this API of me, you know, what's, create this sort of interface, digital interface where other apps and products can um, access all of my data with my permission. Mm -hmm. And so what that gets really interesting is if you start to think about the evolutions with AI, and that's moving very quickly. But... Um, you know, if we had this, if I had all of my data, I could then have a privately trained AI model that trains over all of my data and it becomes this sort of expert about me and everything to do with me, everything to do with my finances, my health, my career, you know, my professional development. And so I can see a, a world quite quickly emerging where you have this sort of digital assistant that's, that's just living by your side almost. And you can talk to it. It will, it'll talk to you. It'll proactively say, Hey, Chris, like there's this meetup you know, that you should go to in Sydney and, you know, you should go, go there because these three people are going to be there and, you know, that's where you want to go in your career. So go there or, Hey, you know, you've got, um, you're spending lots of money on alcohol and you've got this sort of, you know, this health problem. Those two things don't kind of mix. Sounds like a wife. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's this interesting, um, and, and I mean, I'm just making this stuff up, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think one of the powers of, of I think big data and AI is being able to extrapolate things that you don't necessarily think of. And so- Connect the uh, dots. I mean, there's so much information in, in our lives and so many different things going on. And I mean, I like that. I like both the examples, but the, uh, not the one about alcohol, cause uh, that would, that would be a buzzkill, but uh, <laughs> turn you off right now. No, uh, the, uh, you know, Hey, there's this meetup and these three people that you know, on LinkedIn, like, how am I going to, I don't have the time to research all that stuff. Um, but if it's, you know, out there thinking ahead, why not? Yeah, exactly. And, and like the, we've seen for corporations, the value of big data, you know, having all this data and extracting meaning from that and extracting value. And I guess the, the concept here is if, if we could have almost like this big data for ourselves, you know, imagine what could be extracted there and how that could be used to, to help us and um, improve our daily lives in, in lots of ways that we probably can't even imagine right now. Um, and yeah, okay. So I, I don't know if you've read the book data and Goliath. 
so it's uh um <clears throat> yeah it basically talks about the the the, the problems with the government in mass surveillance which leads to a lot of data but then also basically our you know the, our economic system right now to a great degree is based upon capturing personal data and and looking at different ways that uh, it can it can influence people or pr proactively understand you know what you're what you're going to be looking for and kind of feed you what they think that you're going to be looking for and so on and so forth but um in this case this is your data and only you would have access to it um or your personal ai would uh, ai assistant would have uh, access to it so that would and by removing it I guess you know, like with the other example, with uh, with companies have who have that exposure to GDPR, them moving it out, it kind of solves some of that problem. Um, what uh, have you have you heard of anything? I, I read another book called The Ministry for the Future, and in their book or in that book, it's uh, kind of a sci-fi look at the future uh, in terms of how we can prevent our counteract climate change and, and so on and so forth. But they do talk about self-sovereign identity. And one of the applications that they talk about is when you own your identity, companies need to ask permission to market to you. And they actually have, will pay you to be marketed to. So, I mean, I, you know, I think you were on Brave browser. I think Brave has something like that built in where, um, you know, you get, I don't know actually how it works. Maybe you can explain. But is that anything at all that you're looking at in terms of, uh, you know, permission-based marketing? Yeah. So um, there's two pieces there. One's permission and one's marketing. So um, one of the reasons, one of the big reasons we actually built the Verita wallet, like the super wallet, is because you need a user interface for consent. Hmm. Um, you need a way to present to a user and say, hey, look, this application or this this business, they're asking for your data, and this is you know this is what they're asking for. This is for how long, you know. This is the type of you know is it a once-off data request? Is it an ongoing streaming of data? There's a whole really important user consent story and user experience story there that crypto wallets are just not built for, and so that's one of the fundamental reasons we actually started building our own wallet that encapsulated that um, consent model, uh, and then we built that into the underlying. Um, architecture of the storage protocol because we needed the storage you know the consent to exist alongside the technology and the user interface so um that's a really important point that you need to have that and then you're right like we've got a couple of projects that we're working with that are in stealth around ad tech or or marketing and um doing that in a consensual privacy preserving way and um we're a little bit we're exploring different ways of doing that like it can be hey um Hey, Chris, do you consent to sharing this information with this third party? But it's going to be anonymized. We don't know it's you, um, but there's a way there that you can then get notified if there's something that is relevant to you. That's one way to do it. But, you know, there's other ways of doing it, of having like on a blockchain broadcast and say, hey, here are all the different offers that are available for people that meet this particular criteria. And then my phone looks at all of those and, and almost does like a, a search that's real time. and goes, oh, those three are things that match me and there's like five tokens associated with them. Okay, cool. Well, I'll show them to my user, Chris. And, you know, if he clicks through, then there's some tokens there. So I think there's some uh, learning. We're still early in kind of working out sure. what this will look like and what makes sense to people. You know, people. some people have want nothing to do with this at all. Others are really interested in it. So, um, yeah, it's really it's a really interesting and emerging space. Well, I, I, I kind of non-technical... Um 
parallel to that is, you know, I mean, when you go to individual companies' websites or something like that, oftentimes if you purchase something or even you just give them your email address, they'll give you 10%, 25% off. So they're not actually giving you cash, but they are giving you value for giving them your information, right? And and I'm okay with that because it's a decision and you know what, I'm going to get that discount and I so I got something and then, and then later I can unsubscribe if I want. Um, I'm not okay with Google, for example, when I do a search on Google and then three minutes later I'm on Facebook and they're serving me ads, right? And that feels weird to me and I'd like to get compensated, damn it. <laughs> so, uh, well, there's a consent issue, isn't it? Like in, yeah. in the first example, you provided consent and then the second one, you, you have, I mean, you, there's a terms and conditions hidden somewhere where you've basically provided consent, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not an obvious kind of consent and not no. one that you necessarily expect. Yeah. Blake, Chris, uh, enjoy this conversation. Anything else that, um, that top of mind that you'd like to share with us about, uh, you know, uh, upcoming events with Verita or, or anything else? Um, probably one call that is if you are interested in what we're doing, um, there's two ways that you can kind of get involved. So one is we've got incentivized test nets, so you can actually download our app. You can play with some of the apps that our partners are building and just sort of explore the, the ecosystem and this new type of technology. So feel free to go to um, our website, verita.network and, and try that out. Um, the other one I would suggest is if you are interested in this technology, you're a builder, you're a developer, maybe you're, maybe you're in an existing industry and you think that there's an opportunity to kind of disrupt your industry with this sort of technology, um, feel free to reach out or explore some of the the information we have on our website and learn more about what this tech can do because um you know as i said earlier i think there's a huge opportunity here to disrupt a lot of the incumbents by tokenizing business models having people to have ownership in in the models themselves and, and take ownership of their data in a, in a privacy preserving way awesome well hey um again thanks so much for being on secure talk and i'd like to wish you was it it's, it's winter time for you guys right it is. We're almost at the start of spring. So okay, well, I ho hope you have an enjoyable uh, rest of your winter and an early spring. All righty. <laughs> Fantastic, Mark. Appreciate your time. Great to connect. Hello. Welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.